Welcome to The Bliss Tour. I'm Julia Lee, and this is the very first episode. Today, I have a great interview with Sarah Wendell of Smart Bitches Trashy Books. We talk about her transition from cube life to blogger, expectations of work life, and a little bit of romance. Enjoy. The first thing I want to talk about is cube life. I'm calling it cube life because it is sort of a life of its own. And if you've never worked in an office in cubicles, it, it, seem, it might seem um, weird. But I, I have a theory about um, work. You know, when they do the annual reviews or review, they talk about, you know, we want people to be challenged. Um, what can we do to challenge you? And I, just before I started my sabbatical, I start. I really thought about that. And I was like, the opposite of challenging is easy. I think what most people want to do is be interested at work. That sort of, and not that that's your experience of working in the queue, but um, you were willing to give it up. You worked to give it up. So I was just wondering how you, what cube life life was 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 like for you, and was it easy to give up, and why was it easy to give up? Well, my cube life was a little uh, different because my first jobs were in. Jewish nonprofit enterprises. I worked for overnight camps as a registrar, and then during the summer I taught art at the camp. So when I started that job, we had our own little office. So I had my own little room, and I had a lot of space to do what I needed to do. And this was, you know, 15, 17 years ago. So a lot of what we did involved a lot of paper. And when the parent organization said, we don't want to pay the rent on an office, you're moving into the main office in Manhattan, I was like, oh, I have, to commute, I have to commute into the city, as opposed to driving 20 minutes to a place near my home. And I went from this huge desk to a space where it was so small, I couldn't, and I'm, I'm five feet three inches tall, not a tall person, I could put my chair to the back of one wall and I could not straighten my legs on the other wall. <laughs> I was, I mean... I know that when I order pants that my inseam is about 21 and a half inches. So I do not have long legs and my cube was so small I couldn't sit with my back to one wall and straighten my legs. I had my legs had to be bent. It was so small. And I remember getting there and thinking, you have got to be kidding me. I cannot work in this space. But I had to sort of make the best of it and everyone else did too. When I left that job for a different nonprofit, I worked in a slightly larger cube, but again, I kept thinking, you know, I have to do this job that involves all of this paper, lots of paper, piles and piles of paper, and I don't have enough room to do the things that I have to do. Plus, everyone can hear everyone else, and I was exhausted by that environment. I hated it. Yeah. I think it... I think it uh, open floor plans. I think open floor plans and cubicles especially promote a lot of exhaustion and they certainly spread germs and as someone with an immune system that's about as strong as you know old tissues I got sick a lot the last job I had before I quit to run my website full-time I don't talk a lot about it out of respect for the people that I worked for, but I was one of two assistants to a CEO of a Fortune 200 company, or maybe Fortune 100 now. I don't remember. I haven't looked in a while, but it was a big company, and it was a major company in New York. My job was basically extremely high-level administrative assistant work and organization and management. So while the primary assistant to the CEO did most of the um, higher level tasks like barking, for example, (laughs) barking was done by her. Excuse me. Do you need to come here? I apologize. I heard you say on your podcast, there has to be at least one animal. There has to be a pet. Excuse me. So when I, when, the primary CEO CEO's assistant was in charge for th- of things like corresponding on his behalf, doing more intricate and higher level tasks. My job was to manage his calendar, calendars of various members of his family, the drivers of the carpool, the pool of uh, livery drivers, um, managing anything that came up at the last minute opening the mail, trafficking all of the phone calls, all of them. There were lots. And 
my job kept me very busy. But what, what, what made me, what made me wonder when you were talking about how people want to be challenged, mm -hmm. I don't think that's actually always true. I was happier when my day was on autopilot because I had so many small tasks to remember and keep in order that if they were familiar, it wasn't alarming to me. If it was autopilot and I could do all of the things that I had to do without some, without a crisis, without something weird happening, without something where I had to manage everything else plus everything else that I was doing. When I was able to function on autopilot, my day was a lot better. Yes. So I didn't particularly want the challenge of anything else going wrong because if something went wrong, it threw everything else off. And it, and it was weird because I would explain to people what I actually did, like what my tasks were. But after a while, I realized that not everyone can do that job. You have to be extremely organized and you have to be able to focus on getting the task done even when something's wrong. I think one of the most important lessons I learned as someone who has worked in offices was something that I learned at summer camp because I was a staff member at summer camps when I was a teenager. And at camp, you only have three weeks, three and a half weeks, four weeks to give kids a really great summer experience. It's not a lot of time. The days seem really long, really, really long. But the time that you're there is very short. And so I learned that if something goes wrong, fix it. Get it fixed. Make things yeah. right and working again. Figure out later why it happened. Who's to blame? What went wrong? That's later. Now fix the problem. The right. problem needs to be fixed. And the other thing I learned was there's no such thing as not my job. Yeah. And people that I have met who have worked at camps or environments where everyone has a limited amount of time to do a lot of things, they have that sort of attitude too. There's no such thing as not my job. If I can help, I'm going to. And if something goes wrong, get it fixed and then figure out later what went wrong. Those skills were extremely useful when I worked at my last job because things went wrong on a daily basis. There was traffic. We didn't have a car. This meeting was running over. This was late. Something was happening. And because of, how do I put this? Because of, I don't want to... I'm trying to figure out how to say this without talking about who I worked for, because that for me is a topic that I don't, I don't talk about. No, when, okay. when the phone rang, it wasn't like random people. There were really important people on the phone. Right. And there were really important people. If coming they had that phone. number, they were important. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That is exactly right. And so I would be managing the presence of a person who was there for a meeting along with a security detail. Yeah. And sometimes we'll have a meeting and there's like security details the day before. And so, you know, that was a pretty normal thing. I had to manage that on top of my already extremely long to-do list. And so I just kept persevering. Okay, if this went wrong, we'll fix this. This isn't right, we're going to move it. This doesn't work, I will move it. And as a result, I realized, okay, having worked with some people who were really good at that type of position and having worked with some people who really struggled, that is not a job that everyone can do. Yeah. So I learned to appreciate my own organizational skill set. <laughs> Again, when you were talking about being challenged, I was like, I really like the boring days because they were a lot more relaxing. <laughs> I, have to, I have to agree because when, you know, my interest level runs out about a year and a half, two years into any, pretty much any job. Um, and that's when, you know, the managers start talking about, we want you to be challenged. And I realized I was like, I would much rather have an easy job, a job that's easy for me than a challenging job that I wasn't interested in. An easy, boring job is much better than a challenging, boring job. And so, yeah, I've, I've, I was a temp. I lived in New York for a couple of years and I was a temp and one of them, one of the, I guess it was three, three weeks, two or three weeks when he, one of his assistants was on vacation, I temped there. And mm -hmm. yeah, it's not difficult. It's just a lot. And you have a list yeah, and you go through exactly. it and you're like, boom, 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 dun, 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 dun. So that sort of, you know, gets to the idea of, did you see continuing in that work? Did you see um, climbing up the, the corporate ladder or- There was going? nowhere else for me to climb. That was the thing. <laughs> yeah. The, the only position in my line of work at that company, the only position higher than mine was my boss's, which I did not realize until I had quit. 
I could have been an assistant to a different person. I could have moved to a different um, director or vice president. I could have moved to another position, but I was the second assistant to the CEO. Yeah. I could have taken on jobs that involved different responsibilities, like, for example, managing the air fleet of planes that belonged to the company, you know, for as an example. I could have moved into a position like that, but I didn't want to do that. One thing that I wish someone had told me that I figured out on my own and that I now like to tell people is in America, there is an enormous pressure to be your job. Yes. The first thing you ask yes. is, what do you do? Because yes. your profession is your job. So if I say, I'm a secretary, I have I have Im- immediately assigned myself a set of um, expectations and perceptions for that person. Right. Whereas if I explain what it was that I actually did, I was not just a secretary. I did a lot of stuff. Yeah. But that was not my passion. That right. was my job. Right. And I wish that someone had told me earlier because I had to figure out on my own that it is okay to have a job that pays your bills, that gives you shelter and food and health insurance if you need it, and then to take that money and use it to do all of the other things that you love. It's okay that you, if you don't adore your job, it is okay to have a job that gives you money to do the other things that you adore if the things that you adore don't pay. Yes. Yeah. And so I did not want to be my job. And I, I liked my job when I, when I was time for me to leave, it was because I had reached a point where I wasn't happy where I was and I had the opportunity to run the website full time. All of a sudden this thing that I worked on that I loved, that I enjoyed, that I had done for at that point, three years, all of a sudden I thought, oh, this can be my job. All right. So I was extremely fortunate. I'm married. I'm married to someone who works as an attorney. And while he doesn't do litigation, he's not in court. He does financial transactions, which for the most part have a pretty normal working hour day. It's, it's yeah. pretty good for an attorney. He was able to say, okay, I can cover your health insurance because our, our health insurance benefits for my family were through my company. And the thing about law firms, it's like they all got together and decided, let's offer really crappy benefits to all the attorneys. Let's do it. <laughs> the benefits for your families, if you're an administrative and support staff, no worries. If you're an attorney, the benefits are really kind of crappy. So we had to figure out, can we afford to switch from my company to his company for insurance benefits? Mm-hmm. That's another thing that makes me very angry about the United States. Healthcare is not a, a, a privilege. Healthcare is not something that you should have to worry about. It is the mark of a, of an, a developed, advanced first world country to provide healthcare for its citizens. Like that's a yeah. no brainer. What the hell is wrong with us? I don't know. When I'm queen, we'll fix that problem. But we switched from his my insurance to his. And I sat down and I said, okay, what's the amount of money I need to make in a month to cover the money that I was bringing in? Let's shoot for 65% of my monthly salary and see if I can do it. And within two years, I had exceeded my old salary because I was looking at it from a, this is what we need to survive and this is what we need to be comfortable and this is what I would like to do. So because I had those, those monthly goals, I made that into my job. I am extremely fortunate. I am blessed beyond measure. I wake up every day and go, holy crap, this is my job. This is awesome. But I wish that it was possible to go back and tell me in the past, dude, it is totally okay to do a job where you have set hours and you know when you're leaving and you know when you're off. Yes. And you, you make your money and you pay the mortgage and you buy your groceries and then you go do, do things that you love. You don't have to be your job. Yes. But when you, when you grow up in our culture, you're taught to be your job. Yeah. You're, and that's a hard thing to break out of. You're taught to be your job and you're taught to work all the time. Um, yes. and you're taught, I, I think I was one of the few people at my last job who refused to church to check email on the weekends. Oh my gosh. Like, no. And that's, that's heresy. I know it's complete, it's complete heresy. And then I would get, you know, I would get into work Mondays and I would just see all these conversations from the weekend. I'm like, no, no, this is the weekend. There's a reason why you need a weekend. 
um, I'm not doing it. And so, um, Are you getting paid for those hours? Then no. No. And, 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 you know, during the week, on the weekend, I used to, one of my jobs, I used to travel a lot. Um, and for a while, this was in the early 2000s, um, 2003, 2004, probably 2005 as well. I refused to get a cell phone. Oh, first so, so I was traveling around all the time. No cell phone. Woo-hoo! Oh my girl, girl that's serious <laughs> balls right there. It was, it was, and then once I got a cell phone, I was totally addicted. But uh, that's that's neither there, um, here nor there. But um, I mean, we talked a little bit about some of the things I was going to get into. But I, so I want to back up a little bit and talk sure. about taking the time it took to start smart bitches mm-hmm. um when you were still working i mean what um do you think you would have you co-founded it with candy tan uh-huh. tan uh-huh. um do you think you would have started it on your own um what kind of time were you putting into it what kind of did it feel like um something that energized you or um yeah, <laughs> not very, not a very articulate question, but no, totally just, understand. Just the what idea of sharing your busy um, cube life job mm-hmm. um, and this new thing you'd started. I'm, I'm, you started a romance box. I'm assuming you were already in your in your off hours reading a lot of of romance. I was, and I had that commute too, so I yes. could, you know, I could uh, read on my commute in. I have been writing online since 1997 when I graduated college because I taught myself HTML as my senior, uh, senior thesis project for my undergraduate honors program. Wow. And I decided I was going to teach myself HTML and I was going to build the English department website as my senior project. And it was so ugly, but at the time it was totally awesome. We got it now and it's like, that's really too bad. That thing that I did. Yikes. So I have always been writing online in one way or another. Okay. And I had my own um, online journal, which, <laughs> which sounds as pretentious as it was. It, it was like basically an online journal of long yeah. length. This was before blog software. And I had to code my own archives and I had to code oh, the wow. page and then write the page. And what happened was I got to be very fast at writing nonfiction for myself. If I was writing about my opinion, I am a very fast writer. Okay. So when it when we started the the website, I already had a personal blog, which is how Candy and I met through my personal site, okay. and I already had a side blog that I was running with somebody else. And the nice thing about online journals and just the beginning of blog software back then was that once you set them up, mm-hmm. you can set things to go live in the future. You can set things to happen when you're not there. So I could set things up and write things in advance and then post them. But part of the content, especially of my site is the conversation that happens afterward. So my posting a piece of content is only step one. Then people talk about it and then the conversation becomes part of the content. So I didn't need to be present all the time to make the site work. What we were doing was catching enough attention at the time. We also realized that a lot of the people who were reading the site worked in publishing. And so they were most likely to be on the site when I was at work. I would check my work email at lunch. I would check the site at lunch at my lunch hour to make sure nothing had gone wrong. If something was, you know, people were really angry about something, I would get to it when it was lunchtime. And I was able to run it by myself. When it came time to to quit, I was pretty much running the site independently. And it had started to, it had started to stress me out that I wasn't on the site more because there were more things that I wanted to do that I couldn't do. So when I quit, you were still working. I was still working. And when I stopped working in a cube and I started doing the site full time, I realized that my responsibility was to make sure I wasn't working all the time. 
because I don't have to work all the time. It, it, the site runs itself in a lot of ways. I just have to make sure that I'm watching what people are saying. I'm watching the comments. I address problems as they come up. I respond to email, but I don't need to sit there and watch the website. Right. I don't need to sit there and stare at it. It doesn't need to be stared at. It's a very happy site. It has a really wonderful community of human beings who talk to me all day. As a result, I have the ability to schedule my time and figure out what projects I want to work on to develop more of the site, which is enormously awesome and a lot of fun. Yeah, that's so you you brought up something you were already um, you were already working with someone else on, a, on another blog. Mm -hmm. What what made smart bitches really take off? I mean, was it the 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 people in publishing reading it? Was it the topic? Um, what made that one take off as opposed to the other blog or any of the other blogs you had? Or, or was it your passion about the topic? No, I don't think it was just me. I think it was a combination of a number of factors, uh -huh. not the least of which was that I had underestimated two things. One, I had underestimated the number of people who read romance who have been looking or didn't know they wanted a community of romance readers to talk with. Our site is 10 years old, so in 2005, there were not that many romance blogs around. And there weren't that many places where you could sit and have conversations and communicate and respond to people and have long comment discussions. There weren't that many blogs about books, much less romance novels. And we created this space where we were discussing romance novels critically, which didn't always go over well. And we were discussing what made the books work and not work for us, things about the genre that made us bananas angry, why the covers are so crazy. Let's talk about the covers and have you seen this one? Because it's completely insane. We were having a really good time while also being critical. And we had, I, I had underestimated the number of people who were looking for a community that was as passionate about romance as they were. The other thing that we underestimated was the number of authors who will Google their own names. <laughs> And then find themselves being talked about and then spread the link. For, for the first six, eight months, the number one referral source for the site traffic was email servers because people were just emailing each other the link. Oh my goodness, did you see this? Did you see this? Oh my gosh. I know one person who used to work at a publishing house, whenever we put up cover snark, would stand up in her cube and go, the covers are up! And then everyone would go to the website and look at what we said about romance covers this week. Because... We, we were so excited about what we were doing. I think that translated into finding people who were as excited to be there as we were to run it. And that community is still present. It's the, it's the best part of the site and the part that I'm most protective of. Mm -hmm. So that's part of what made it successful. Other factors, I may not even know of what they were. It helped that there were times when we had mainstream media coverage. It helped that there were times when, um, you know, scandal would happen and we would talk about it. Um, beyond that, it was, I think, the enduring aspect that made us exciting and interesting to people who'd never been there before was that we were just so enthusiastic and unabashed about talking about how much we loved romance and we wanted to talk about it with more people. I was going to ask questions about fear. It sounds like you have no fear. <laughs> I mean, you, you talked about the transition, how to make, how to transition from working in the cubicle to having this as your full-time job. Mm -hmm. um, I was reading um, an article and they were talking about the number one thing that stops people from doing what they love or going after their dreams or, you know, following their bliss for lack of a, of, of a, of a different term. Um, and the number one reason is fear. Yep. And I know I feel that I know this is, this is probably the second or third midlife crisis I've had, depending on, how, <laughs> depending on how you define, you know, um, mid, I know the things that have stopped me before have been fear. And I know that people's response to, when I tell them I'm taking a sabbatical, it's not really a sabbatical. I just quit my job. Um, right. But if you say you're taking a sabbatical, it sounds much more legitimate. I than know. I, quit. I know. Yeah. Um, because you being free of the message that we all should be working is very scary to people. Everyone has been like, I'm so envious and, yep. um, you know, jealous or, you know, it's, it's, it, I had to get used to it. I, 
when I, you know, after the, it was over after the end of my two weeks notice, I said, I'm going to give myself a week to just do nothing and hang out. And that turned into like a month. Yeah. <laughs> that turned into almost six weeks because I yeah. was just like, and it frees up time in a, in a, in a, in a way that I hadn't thought about before. It, to go to the grocery store at 10 a.m. on a Tuesday morning. It's liberating, isn't it? Because that's the best time to go to the grocery Whoa. store. You want to go to Costco on like a Thursday at 10.30 in the morning yeah. or Tuesday at 10.30. You want to go to the mall like middle of the day on Thursday or Wednesday. Yeah, exactly. you can you can operate outside of crowds. And when you live in a crowded area, it's so incredible. But going through that, making the decision to go on sabbatical um good, really good for you by the way and then, kick ass thank you i i sold my house a year ago because mm -hmm. i felt this i was like i have to do something different if i turn 50 and i'm sitting in this cube i'm just gonna like pull my hair out yep. and um so you know, this year is evolving. At first I was, I'm writing this novel called The Bliss Tour, and I was like, why don't I do that? I can go here and I can talk to people about what they find blissful and blah, blah, blah. And then I made a trip to Marfa last week, and I was like, mm -hmm. it was six hours of driving, six yeah. and a half hours of driving there and back. And I was like, yeah, no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> this is going to be a virtual tour. Um, but I know that fear is a... Is a, is a big thing. Did you ever have any fear about it? Did you ever think, Oh yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to stop this. I think from what I've heard you say on, on podcasts, um, I think you had children after the blog started. Actually, you know, the blog and my children arrived at about the same time. At the same I started, time. Yeah. Like, I started the blog January of 20, 2005, and my older son was born November of 2005, and my younger son was born in September of 2007. So my so kids were babies while well, the site was a baby. So you were still working full-time, and you had babies, and you were doing this. Was that ever like I can't do this anymore or was it something that energized you was it something that you're like I'm not at work the baby's asleep I'm gonna do this because I'm so energized by it does that make any sense absolutely it does um that is definitely true for me when I need to figure out what it is that I want to do I have to get away from all of the pressure and messages of what I should be doing and so I actually have to go and, like you said, do nothing and sit and quiet. Okay, well, I should be unloading the dishwasher and I should be weeding the patio and I should be working and I should be answering email and I should be seeing what people are saying on Twitter and I should be doing all of these different things, should, 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 should. And then I sit quietly and I hear what I want to do. But that's a very quiet voice in my brain and I have to shut all the other voices up first so I can hear what it is that I actually want to do. That's and in order to do that, I have to be quiet. Yeah, that's a meditation. Totally. Yeah. It, and it's not the strongest voice in your head, especially if you're a female, because as women, we are taught across cultures that our needs are secondary and tertiary to everyone else's, which bull crap, but okay. That's what we're taught. It's hard to break that lesson. One thing that I found really mind-blowing was the incredible sexism and classism and yet powerful message of the four-hour work week by Timothy Ferris. Yeah. On one hand, out, yeah. right. Okay. So on one hand, you have this person who is saying the model where you work yourself to old age and exhaustion and then stop working when you're too old and ill to enjoy it is dumb. This is totally true. Yeah. And that you should enjoy your life and the assets that you have in the world that you live in as big or as small as you want to conceive of that world while you are aware and young and healthy and can go and enjoy it. Also true. And you should travel more because travel makes you a better human being. Totally true. The whole part where he's a single white guy and he can quit his job and create online businesses and he has no children, no dependents, no wife, no parents to take care of and no problems having health insurance. That part does not apply to me. Yeah. Because while I am Caucasian, I am married, I have two children. Um, 
we have parents and we have siblings and we have families and we have responsibilities that keep us in a place, especially because, you know, by virtue of being an attorney, there are only certain states in which my husband can practice law. You know, there are limitations that are placed on people. So I don't think everyone can grab that book and be like, I'm quitting my job and traveling the world for fun. Okay. It's awesome. If you do that, that is totally rad, but I don't think it's fair to say everyone can do this because that isn't true. However, there is a middle ground, I think, between I have to do what I'm expected to do and what everyone thinks I should do, and I want to do what I want to do. I think that you can carve out plenty of time for yourself if you're willing to reject the idea of conforming to expectations placed upon you that are cultural, that are gender-based, that are societally based that are even you know locally based for example i live in northern new jersey right outside new york city mm-hmm. and whenever we travel i'm like everyone drives like five miles an hour slower what's the deal people stop when you cross the street here what is this <laughs> crazy business who are you people you, you actually see me as a pedestrian like you actually see me when i try to cross the street with my dogs it's like one in ten cars will stop to let me cross the street because jersey drivers can be giant buttheads and then i travel to other parts of the country and i'm like you actually are aware of my presence as a human walking on the road we're sh- we're so- i live in austin texas we're so shocked to see someone like a person walking we're like there's a person there. We might are you ill? What is wrong? Do you need help? It's Whereas, 100 degrees out here. Why are you walking? I'm walking. <laughs> That's another thing that makes me laugh because I live in a place with a lot of sidewalks. So even though I can't cross the street because drivers are buttheads, I can walk to get to most things if I really need to. Meanwhile, I have like umpty million big box stores five miles away. There's, a, there's an enormous amount of power and individuality, I think, in saying okay, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to do what I want. And I'm going to, I'm going to figure out what, what I need to make what I want happen. There's a really interesting book that you might like called Paris Letters. Oh yeah, I read it. Right. How much does it cost to quit your job and travel? That's really what started. You go girl. That's awesome. Because my, my initial idea, like I said, this, this, um, this year is evolving. Before I quit my job, my initial idea was like more of an eat, pray, love thing because I know I don't like to travel from place to place to place to place because I'm much more of a homebody and traveling. I'm an efficient traveler. I'm a good traveler, but it tires me out. Um, so my original idea was like to go to Paris and stay there for three or four months and then go to a beach somewhere and stay there for three or four months and then maybe go to the mountains and stay there for three or four months. Right. Yeah. Just sort of have a steady place, one place that I, that I'm living. Um, so I could just sort of, you know, write and get to know people there instead of going from place to place to place to place. Um, but I, I read that and I started calculating. Yep. I don't know. I can't remember if I read it. I, it was somewhere around the, the time that I was putting up the house. Yep. Um, because I was, I, I, as you said, like a house is a huge um, anchor. It's, it is. It's, it's mortgage. It's, you know, I could rent out the house, but then I would be responsible for anything that goes wrong. Anything that goes wrong, and if I'm in Paris, that's not going to work well. And yep. it's just me. I'm I'm not married. I don't have any kids. Um, so if I decide I'm going to sell this house for the money and see how much money I make and see where I can go from there, um, that's what I decided to do. And I I know I read Paris letters somewhere around there because yep. she was she was calculating how much money she would need to quit her job um, and how much money she would have to save. And yep. I, I just happened to luck out because I sold my house at the bottom of the, I bought my house at the bottom of the market and I sold it. I don't think it's the top of the market yet, but it was pretty high. So I didn't go through the, the process of saving, but it's it's totally, totally, I read that book and it yep. inspired me to, to do this. Well, I think it's a question that a lot of people should ask themselves. How much would it cost for me to do what I want to do? How much would it cost for me to do that thing I keep thinking about? How much is it going to cost me to retire? If I need X amount of money on a, on a monthly basis to retire, how much do I have to save? Can I set a target retirement date and work backwards from there? Yeah. And how one, I mean, one, go ahead. Oh, I, I was just going to say it's about 
I love my house. My house is great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Loved it. I love my home. But yeah, I was, I, I was willing to give it up because I, I knew I had to do something different. Yeah. I knew I had to um, try something different, maybe even be somewhere different than, than where I was. And so, yeah, I, I'm so lucky. <laughs> I'm so lucky that I'm able to do this. And, um, but I want it, I'm, it's, like I said, it's evolving and it's, I don't know what it's going to end up being. What I hope to have by the end of it, no matter what happens, is I can talk about myself in a different way than I did before when I had 10, 12, 15, 20 years of, you know, cubicle managing um, stuff, organizing stuff, jobs. At the end of this year, how will I be able to talk about what I'm doing? I'm blogging, but do I really want to be a blogger? You know, I'm writing, but do I really want to be a writer? There's, There's so much involved in in having this time to just really think about what it is I want to do. Um, So yeah, it's, it's been kind of of my, in mid March was when I stopped working and it's been kind of a mind blowing, um, what, three months at this point. And I still have long to do list. I still have work. I still have writing. I still have critique groups. I still am trying to line up interviews of people like you, who I find interesting, whether or not, you know, there's some, oh my God, I can't tell you how obsessed I am with, um, I can't think of his name, the subjunctive TED talk that you linked to months ago. I'm obsessed with him, a little obsessed with that idea and just examining my own language. He's a classics professor. I major in classics in college. Right. And, um, just, thinking about language and how it's used and how much I say would, should, could, and that effect it has not only on, you know, who I'm communicating with, but my own brain. Oh yes. Should is a very powerful language that is, that is pressed on women a lot. You should do this. You shouldn't do that. Yes. Um, so I don't know how I got off on that tangent. Okay. So back to you. (laughs) Um, I cannot, I think it's funny that we've read a lot of the same books. (laughs) I can't, I can't let you leave without talking about romance books a little bit. Sure. And the joy of romance books. You know, I've read romance books, but I never really thought of myself as a romance reader. Like in the, like in the early 2000s, I read all the, um, I'm blanking on her name, Bethany, Welcome to Temptation. Jennifer Cruzy. I read all the Jennifer Cruzy. Yay. Um, you know, I read paranormal romance and everything like that. And it wasn't until... But I always sort of thought of romance as um, historical romance. I even read Harlequin, like the Harlequin Blaze or the Harlequin Temptations or something like that. And it wasn't even Harlequin. It was like, I don't, I had never read a historical romance until last year. And I read Courtney Milan's The Heiress Effect. And that was my first historical romance. And I was like, why have I not been reading these? Because this is awesome, and I just started reading them. And talk to me a little bit about, um, or we can discuss a little bit about, sort of the joy of reading romance. Like it, it seems like something you've sort of de- de- dedicated your work life to, yep. and it's just yeah, the joy of, of reading romance and how to communicate that and. And, and and how it launched you on this career that perhaps you've never considered before. I had no idea that this was gonna where this was where I was going to end up. None at all. I had no idea that ultimately a blog would be my job and I would get to talk about romance novels full time. That's kind of amazing and I'm yeah. enormously fortunate and I sort of look at that with awe and, and gratitude every day. But romances are about female self-actualization. They are about women discovering who they are, what they want, what kind of hero they deserve or heroine, what kind of life they want. They are about female lives being primary and important and satisfaction and happiness being of utmost importance. 
So they are very inspiring and powerful tools when you are considering what to read for your fiction enjoyment. The other thing is that they are about emotions and they are about, they, they are, they want you to feel. A good romance author will help you feel the, a, a great deal of empathy and connection with the characters. And so you go on an emotional journey with them. If you read a lot of romance, you are reading a lot about hope and commitment and happiness and intention. People who are at the end of a romance novel, you want to know that they have the intention of being together permanently you want the happy ever after or the pretty darn happy for now yeah so when you look at romance novels as a model for readers there are some things that are just completely bananas about romances there are some things that are really goofy like all these people who die and leave wills requiring other people to cohabitate <laughs> i don't understand and there are things like everyone goes to a small town and all the small towns have really cute names. And I don't know if you've noticed, but romance is like spectacularly white. And it does not accurately represent the way the society of women who read it, how they look. The women who read romance should see themselves in the genre that they're reading. And the genre does not resemble the women who read it enough, in my opinion. So, and, and that's a number of identities too. It's not just women of color, it's women of different cultures, women of different religions. It's one of the reasons I self-published a Hanukkah novella because my rule is I'm allowed to complain about something three times and I either have to do something about it or shut up. That's a, that's a, a brilliant rule, by the way. It's a good rule. That's it a keeps really me from good rule. being annoying. So I was like, well, damn it, here comes another flood of Christmas romances. How could there not be romances about Hanukkah? It's eight days, there's candlelight, candlelight is romantic, we have fried food and jelly donuts. What's missing here? This is a great setting for romance. What's going on? So I wrote one. It was really hard, but I knew it was hard. I knew going in that it was going to be easy. I have never said, oh, well, you know, I'll just whip one of those out on the weekend because I actually know that it's very difficult to write good romance because I've read a lot of it. The fact that the genre doesn't quite represent the women who read it is something that I think needs to change. But I also think that because we have social media and the ability to communicate with each other, we can say, these are the books I'm looking for. And someone can say, oh, I totally know that book. I totally wrote that book. I know someone who wrote that book for you. We can connect much faster and say openly what it is that we want. With making romance novels my, my job, which is kind of amazing, and every time I say it, I'm like, wow. The, the best part of it is that I get to meet so many different people who love the same thing I love. And so even though I may not have anything else in common with that person. Every time I go to a conference or I travel or I'm online, I meet someone who loves the same thing I love mm -hmm. and we have something to talk about. Now, I, I know people don't believe this is uh, true, but I'm actually very introverted and it took a long time for me to get over being very, very shy. <laughs> I was having a conversation with one of my kids and he was saying, I'm, I'm really shy about talking to adults. And I was like, that's okay, I was too. And he looked at me like, really? I'm like, no, dude, it took me a long time to figure out how to talk to people because I didn't know how. Yeah. And that's okay. You figure it out. Because I have this ability to connect with people online virtually, it's a lot easier for me to make conversation with people that I don't know. And because I've done it so much online, it's easier for me to do that in person so that when I do travel or do something different or go into a place that I've never been before, I know how to talk to people. Yeah. And I know how to I know how to connect with people as honestly as I can, which I think is one of the most important things that you can do as a person. That um, that is a very I'm very introverted. I I went to RT. Yeah, that's not an easy place for an introvert. No, I've got no squee game. I've got no squee game. Um, so it was it was really hard and some of the authors i i saw i was like oh my god i love her and then i was like i can't <laughs> i can't go up but it was it was still fun but it was um yeah i've got to work on my squee game because when you really like someone's work that's the entire purpose of of, of the rt but um and finding more books to love and finding more books yeah i 
Yeah, I ended up buying a lot of books. Um, yeah, been the there, RT. been there, been there. So my last question is, um, what does bliss mean to you? And it doesn't have to be your work related or anything. It just whatever bliss means to you. Bliss to me is safety and security and comfort and timelessness. Ooh. As long as I am safe and my children are safe, my husband is safe, our home is safe, we are secure, there's no danger. And I, and I say that because we have been through a strange number of weather disasters mm, yeah. in New Jersey, Hurricane Sandy being the worst, and we're still cleaning up from that. So I'm more conscious of how important our home is and how important it is to have a home that is safe for my family. As long as we have those basic needs met, what I really like is when I don't have to worry about what time it is. When I don't have to be worried about what time is it? Do I have to be somewhere? Do I have an appointment? Is something happening? We're all here. We can all hang out and we can just be right now in this very mellow space of time and have a, a, a timeless awareness like right now it's cool we don't have anywhere we need to be let's just be and not worry about what time it is that to me is the ultimate bliss i find that the most relaxing thing that's right you're in the present moment yes yeah and i don't have to worry about what time it is because it's now it's now now it's good now it's okay that's i was talking point. to somebody on twitter about a couple of months ago and this person who I hadn't spoken with before said, I, I find you really inspiring and I could use some advice. I'm really stressed right now. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I'm really sorry you're stressed. What's going on? And she was telling me about what's happening. And I said, okay, well, I've been telling myself that right now everything's okay. Right now, things are good. That might change. But worrying about it, worrying about what might happen is going to mess up now. And now is good. So let's not mess up now. Now is cool. Everything's all right right now. Just relax. It's okay. We're going to deal with things as they come, but worrying about them doesn't make them show up faster. It just ruins your now. That's so true. Don't yep. ruin the now. That's That should be a more sticker. <laughs> yes. Or as my... Uh, my, my, one of my college friends, her aunt used to tell her, because I went to college in the very deep south in South Carolina, and there were lots of aunts who lots who said lots of smart things. And I was like, does everyone in this, in this town have smart aunts? Like, what's going on? Poor aunt said, never pay interest on troubles that you have not borrowed yet. Don't yeah. pay interest on things that you don't own. Don't worry about stuff that hasn't happened yet. If you think it might happen, being prepared is not the same as worried. Okay. Yeah. So I'm, don't ruin your now. I'm, I'm Now's a, okay. I'm a world class warrior. Like yep, have, many of us are. I have advanced degrees in just worrying constantly. Um, well, I think that's that's it. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much for taking the time. I was um, you know, I, I went to the session at RT where where I saw you and I was like, I had really had to screw up my courage to um, go up to you and say, hey, I'm doing this thing. And you're like a perfect example of, of someone who understands what it's like to work in a cube and then is doing something else, doing something you really passionate about, something right. you really love. So thank you for doing this and taking the time and thank you. I, I think that what you're doing is awesome and important and very cool. And I, I hope that you are proud of yourself because what you are doing is completely badass and excellent and i hope you have an incredibly awesome sabbatical oh and i'm really glad you came up and talked to me because this was really fun thank you okay good thanks again to sarah wendell of smart bitches trashy books and thank you for joining me on this first episode of the bliss tour i'll have links and additional information about this episode on the blisstour.com the music you are listening to was provided by jamendo and this is possibilities by jasmine jordan I hope you enjoyed this interview because I'm planning on doing more. Find me at theblisstour.com and on Twitter and Instagram at theblisstour. Find your bliss. You got my eye. I saw you
so very cool No hesitation I knew right then the story I would have to tell I'm afraid to love again Cause of what I've been through But your patience, boy, and perfect touch Got me focused on you And the possibility Got you here with me Focused on you and the possibility. 